Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. What a blessing to worship our awesome God. Uh, just one quick announcement. There's a new roster that's out. So every six months, we put out a new roster. Trudy organizes that, and basically, it gives uh, people the opportunity to sign up or to take a break or to contribute in different ways to the body, whether it's coffee and tea or greeting or um, cleaning, the sound desk, all, all sorts of things. I'm just getting some gesticulations from the back there. So, yeah, over there as well. Talk to Paul or Paul. And uh, you see a Paul, just talk to them about the sound ministry. So that's happening. Uh, pray about it. Seek the Lord. And uh, yeah, it's a blessing to be able to contribute to the body. That's part of what koinonia is. It's not just being around each other, but it's serving one another, um, receiving and giving of what God has given us. Uh, we'll be in Genesis 26 today. And also we have uh, communion at the end of service, so everyone is invited and welcome to join in. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, that it is awesome, that you are an awesome God, that what you say will come to pass, and we can see that borne out in history, and we can see that in our own lives, that you have been faithful. Not one word has failed of your good promise, and we thank you for the plans and the purposes you have in keeping us here, in establishing us in this place, for uh, guiding and directing every step. And I pray, Lord, you would fill our hearts with thanksgiving and rejoicing, that there would be a humility and a submission in our hearts before you as our God, as our King, and that we would worship you, and that our worship would not just be in words, but with the attitudes of our hearts, with our choices to walk in faith in obedience to you and we praise and exalt your name, Lord. You are greatly honored and glorious above all. We thank you for this place you provided and for our brothers and sisters here where we can have fellowship and, and read your word and be strengthened and edified. And uh, thank you for the gifts you give. Thank you for the spiritual fruitfulness that comes through you. And we pray, Lord, you would quicken us by your spirit to receive your word today and walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 26, will be starting in verse 15. I was thinking about coincidences this week, that what looks like a coincidence to us, it's known by God. He is able to ordain what appears on the surface to be just something that happened that's a bit out of the ordinary. It's defined as an occasion where two or more similar, similar things happen at the same time, especially in a way that is unlikely and surprising. Since our times are in God's hands, since he knows everything, he can ordain what we call coincidences. And the thing that God does, his, his actions, they're not like likely or unlikely. He does the impossible. Like God is not limited by our understanding or but why, what we think could happen. I think of the servant of Abraham when he went to find uh, the wife that God had appointed for Isaac. And he's praying and he says, Lord, help that. Help. The woman that comes and says, I, offer, I ask her for a drink, and she says, can I water your camels as well? She's the one. And as he's praying, Rebecca comes out and does that. And he's like, he wondered in himself whether this actually was happening. Like, did God just answer my prayer right away? Was it a random coincidence? Now, does God do anything at random? No, 
He's not a random God. There's order everywhere. And when we see events that coincide with each other, instead of looking for those things, because that can be a snare, we look to the Lord, who does those things, who does things uh, beyond number that do coincide with his will, with his plans, with guiding and directing us. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says from an earthly perspective that time and chance happens to them all. Now, the Philistines, they hoped it was blind luck that had caused them, after they uh, captured the Ark of God, to suffer the rats and the tumors for seven months. And so they created this bit of a, a test. They said, if, if we separate these milk cows from their young and they go the way to Beth Shemesh, then we'll know this thing is of the Lord. But if not, then... Uh, we'll know that God has done this to us. Like it was just a chance, by chance it happened, or God did it. And it says the cows just went straight to Beth Shemesh. And they could have written it off as a coincidence, but the reality was God had done it, and he showed them, I've done it. They didn't stop worshiping Dagon. They, they kept worshiping him. Sometimes we see something, we could say, oh, that's bad luck. But know that God ordains things. He does things. He fulfills his word. Just like when that bowman, it said, drew at random and shot an arrow. And it hit Ahab in between the joints of his armor in keeping with the word that God had spoken through Micaiah, the son of Imlot. It said, you will go up to battle and certainly fall today. And he went in disguise. And yet it wasn't random. It was God had said it would happen and it did. So whether a situation seems good or bad, knowing it was God's doing, we exercise our will to seek him, to rest in him, and to trust him. Really, that's the way of wisdom going forward. When we see things that appear to be coincidences, looking to the Lord, he helps us to discern what's the right way. So Genesis 26, 15, and there's heaps that will happen in today's message. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the day of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. For decades, Abraham had dwelt in the land of Canaan. He was a sojourner. He had dug many wells along the way. And God promised to give him all the land that he, he walked upon to him and his descendants, and it's an arid land, a dry land. There weren't like bubbling brooks coming by through all seasons. It was dry. The rains would come, and there would be floods, and then it would just be dry as a bone. And so they were digging wells, and they needed access to life-giving water. So the person who dug the well and found the water, they named it. It became a landmark. It was their water because they found it, kind of like finders keepers. And, and also, it was often a claim to the land around it. Uh, so after Abraham dug the wells, what did the Philistines do? They went behind him and they started filling them in. They stopped up those wells and they tr attempted to erase his connection with the land. They removed his landmarks. They scraped his labor from the earth. But the sabotage did not affect God's word. It didn't change what God has spoken. God's word was still in full force. God continued to bless Abraham and he blessed Isaac after him. I think as believers, we can sometimes fall prey to, to hand wringing and, and being afraid, anxiety. And we see evil called good and good called evil. 
And we can look at what's happening in politics or in schools or in society and we see it being undermined and so we're like, oh no, this is a problem. And, and it's problematic in one sense. I remember seeing this when I taught uh, scripture in public schools that it went from opt out to opt in. So there were far fewer children that were being in scripture because they had to actually ask to be in scripture. And uh, then they were moving it to the end of the day and the end of the week and it was getting more difficult. I remember when I went to school, there was a great outcry in the States that prayer and God were no longer allowed in schools. But it's like, really? Is God not allowed in a school? Can he be legislated out of school? Is his word hindered in any way? Is he now incapable to hear the prayers of the children, the teachers, and the families associated with the schools, or the people in the community that are praying, or even the people from overseas that are praying that God's will would be done there? Is he hindered at all? Is he, oh no, is he worried? No, you cannot overthrow him. His word is true. In filling those wells, the Philistines cut themselves off from a life-giving source. God could still send the rain. So God was still working. God was still blessing. And even though those wells were being filled up, Isaac wasn't getting upset. He wasn't worried. He wasn't like, oh no, what do I do? He went to work. He uncovered those wells again, as we'll see. Like God has not forgotten his promise. God is going to be faithful to his word, and we can trust him. He will overcome all satanic schemes. So Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, he commands Isaac to depart. He says, you're mightier than us. You need to leave. And that's a remarkable observation and admission where he says, you, without an army, without a fortress, without a castle, without any ambition to fight, you are a threat to me. You need to go. It wasn't that Isaac felt threatened that the Philistines had filled the wells, but it was Abimelech, the king, who felt threatened by Isaac because he feared God, because he had a mighty God. That's where his might came from. It wasn't from himself. It was God who speaks, who blesses and guides, the Almighty who creates the heaven and the earth. It's him we worship and obey. So we don't need to be shaken in mind or troubled even when the world is troubled or there's troubling situations around us because God is faithful. The things that people do and say cannot frustrate God's good purposes or prevent him from doing his wonders. I like in the song, it said like, let miracles happen. Well, yeah, God's going to work. Everything he does is miraculous. He is so good. And uh, so we don't put our faith in a denomination or in a preacher or things going well in society or in a future generation saying, well, you're the hope of the future. No, Jesus is the hope of the future, and we look to him. So moving on, Genesis 26, verse 18. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of water running there running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. It was really hard 
to have a family, flocks and herds, and then just be told to leave. When you don't have a water source, what do you do? You have thousands of animals and hundreds of people. It says, after the death of Abraham, the Philistines had filled in the wells. So after Isaac was sent away, he walked in his father's footsteps and he started uncovering those wells and he called them by the same names. The old wells and the old names were good. It's like in following in his father's footsteps who feared God, he was able to find where the water source was. And as he, he walked, he worked and they got uncovered, they uncovered all these old wells. And I love that, that the the demonstration of that willingness to walk where his father had walked, who feared God and to honor God, to labor to obtain water to sustain life. And so he also sent his servants to dig a new well, and they found living water. So this was an artesian well or a spring, running water. So there was pressure with this water they were digging, and the water is just bubbling up from the ground. And that was really special because that meant it didn't matter what season it was, that there was going to be a water source there. And that was a very valuable commodity. Highly prized. It meant the area was habitable. Quite often, where there was a, note, a well, that would become a notable city. That would be named after the well. It's like the well came first, and the city was built around it because it could support all this life. The Philistines, it, they had already envied Isaac because of his wealth, And they also noticed his well, this artesian well that had sprung up. And they uh, quarreled over the ownership of the spring. They're like, this is our land, so that's our water. And they were like, well, we dug it, so it's our water. I mean, this is how it works. And, And they quarreled over it. And in the end, Isaac relented. He called the well Essek, which means contention. So he went and he dug another well. They quarreled over it as well. And he called the name Sitna, or opposition, hatred, hostility. It must have been very hard to leave Gerar, to dig and dig, find water, like, yes, we found water, but then have this fight break out over the water, and then have to leave and do it again and again. You're looking for rest and refreshment. Instead, there's quarreling and hostility. And Isaac, he humbly relinquished the rights of the well, trusting in the Lord, and went on to the next one. Remember, he, could, he was thinking about at one stage going to Egypt. But he stayed in Gerar because God told him to. And now the king is saying, you need to move on. So he's not going to Egypt. He's choosing to walk in his father's footsteps. He's redigging these wells. And it's tough. When the Jews asked Jesus what they needed to do to do the works of God, he told them, believe on him whom he has sent. Believe on me. Now, it's good to realize that this is what we need to do in all the work that we undertake. Believe in Jesus. Trust in him. Look to him. Because we're pilgrims and foreigners in this land, whether this is the land of your birth. Know that we are citizens of heaven now. We are sojourners here and we look to him as our source of living water and eternal life. And there will be conflicts in this world. We will have tribulation. There will be people and spiritual forces of darkness. But really, the most constant pitched battle is going to be waged inside of you. 
inside your own heart and your head and your feelings, your emotions, your will, to submit that to the Lord regardless of the circumstances of your life. To learn in all circumstances to be content, whether you have all or you have nothing, whether you are free or incarcerated. That's what Paul learned, to contentment in God regardless of his circumstances. Now, are we going to be like the disciples who call down fire upon, they wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritans because they refused to receive Christ? And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. Let's go to the next city. I didn't come to destroy lives, but to save them. So not praying against people. Are we going to, by faith in God, stop fighting for our rights? It's like, well, I worked for this well. I found this well, and now I have to give it up just because you are envious? Well, do we trust the Lord to provide the water that we need where he leads us? Warren Wearsby said, it's always too soon to quit. In dry times, don't stop looking to God for everything because we need him. We need that refreshment. We need his spirit. So keep on praying, keep on trusting, keep on obeying, even when things are difficult, even when you're digging and it's hard work and nothing seems to be accomplished except hostility and opposition. Genesis 26, verse 22. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he, na- he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, from now, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Instead of fighting the Philistines, Isaac chose to suffer wrong, and he moved on. He dug another well, and this time, no fights, no quarreling. And so he named it Rehoboth, which means broad places. So God had made room for him. He brought him into a broad place, And he saw this as the providential hand of God in providing for him in the land. And notice that because God had provided this well, he he saw it with an expectation of future fruitfulness. God will cause me to be fruitful in the land. Not that he had been, but would be. And so he saw that as from the hand of the God, and he strengthened himself in faith. Now, isn't it wonderful that God can teach us a lesson of his faithfulness by digging a few holes? That's what happened. He dug a few holes. There were fights, quarrels, but suddenly God had made room for him. There was this, this blessing where he, he may have thought like, I am digging this well so that we can drink water. But God was ha- helping him dig that well so that he could have an expectation of fruitfulness. And that's not what he, why he was digging in the first place. But see, God is working to this end, not just that he would be watered and he would be encouraged, but so we will be encouraged when we are in a dry and thirsty land full of conflict and difficulty. To say, there's a future of fruitfulness for us because of what Jesus has done in giving us the living water of the Holy Spirit. So he dug this well. He found water without quarrels. He acknowledges God makes room for him. Then he goes to Beersheba. 
Now we can mix this up. When we face opposition, we go right to Beersheba. We're looking for something that's more welcoming, more inviting, more easy, rather than digging right where we are. But it's like God made room for him, and then he goes to Beersheba, the place where Hagar was seen by the Lord, the place where his father lived for quite some time. Do we do that sometimes? It's hard, so we want to just move on to something easier, something more welcoming. Uh, but change of scenery doesn't change us. Easier isn't always better for us. He kept digging until God made room for him, and then, then he moved on, trusting that God would continue to provide for him. And he arrives at Beersheba. It says, that same night, God appeared to him. Not a coincidence. This was God's doing. He identified himself and con he conveyed so much. He says, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Now notice he does not use past tense. He doesn't say, I was the God of your father. No, I am the God of your father. Jesus quoted a passage in Exodus, pointed out that this proves that there is life beyond the grave. He said this in Luke 20, 37 and 38. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So he said, do not fear, I am with you. At various times, God spoke to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, and he told them not to be afraid. Many times, it's hundreds of times in scripture where God's people are told not to be afraid. May God show us how often fear can have a foothold in our lives. Like, I don't know what Isaac was afraid of when he went back to Beersheba. But God pointed it out and said, don't be afraid. I am with you. I am the God of Abraham. I am with you. When we have fear striking in our hearts, we have a choice if we are going to look to God and in the fear of God or if we're going to look for something or someone else to assuage our fears. Could you please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 2, starting in verse 11. We can sometimes have this idea that um, because we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that we could not slip into idolatry, that we, because we believe the correct doctrine, we're walking in the right way. But the reality is God's people who were circumcised and who kept his laws and had the temple, they began worshiping idols. And they changed their gods, something that the heathen nations did not even do. Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13, through the prophet, God said, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's like, the heathen nations are more uh, loyal to their sticks and carved stones than my people are with the living God. They, the Philistines worship Dagon. The Amalekites, they sacrifice to Molech. But my people, now they're sacrificing to all these other gods too. They've forsaken me. 
It's like they have the living water in me, just like that artesian well, the, the good stuff, the one that you want. Not a cistern, which would be where the, the rain runoff is collected, which he says is cracked and it's dry. You go there looking for a drink and it's empty. Right when you need it, there's no hope there. And my people have begun to follow idolatry. And the parable that Jesus told about the prodigal, it illustrates that same folly where he substituted money and wine and sex, self-indulgence for his father's presence, provision, and protection. And he went, to the, he went away. He went to spend his inheritance on himself. But God is gracious to allow thirst because it reminds us of our need. It drives us to drink something, right? When I'm thirsty, you, you may not realize you're dehydrated, but your body will start to tell you, like you're getting a headache, your mouth is dry, you need to drink. And really, we need Christ. We need God as our fountain of living water to sustain us throughout every day. He's the source of all blessing, and, and to trade him for anything is foolishness. It says, Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So God appears to Isaac. He blesses him. He says, don't be afraid. And it's like he builds an altar. Builds an altar to the Lord. Called on the name of the Lord. The God who was with him. The God who blessed him. And this is a big deal. This is the only time we read of Isaac building an altar. He was someone who had been bound and laid on an altar. Think of that experience. That would change something when you're now building one, right? Because you've been on one. And he built an altar to the Lord. He, he cried out to God. He called on the name of the Lord. He says, I worship God. The God of my father is also my God. The God of Isaac. Now, back in Genesis 21, Abraham had made a covenant with Abimelech in Beersheba. That was before Isaac was offered on Mount Moriah. And seven ewe lambs were exchanged as witnesses that Abraham had dug the well and he didn't want any quarreling over this well in Beersheba. It says in Genesis 21, 33, 34, then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So we see Isaac now, he's building an altar to God. And interestingly, God is referred to as the fear of Isaac on two occasions. So Isaac was someone who feared God. He feared him, he trusted him, and he had a reverence of God, um, knowing that he's worthy to be praised. Genesis 26, verse 26, Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, one of his friends in Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So he said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord." Isaac's in Beersheba, and he gets these unexpected visitors, right? The king of the Philistines. Abimelech comes, Ahuzath, his friend, and Phicol, the general. Now, 90 years had passed since Abraham 
and Abimelech made that uh, oath together. And the term Abimelech and Phicol, that's like the king and the general. They just had titles. Like Pharaoh was the king. You just call him Pharaoh. We don't know which Pharaoh, and we don't know which Abimelech, but this was just their title that they came to him. And Isaac was really surprised they were there because he's like, I thought you hated me because you sent me away. Um, And no doubt that conflict with the herdsmen on several occasions confirmed that. Like, yeah, there's hostility between me and the Philistines. They've been filling in the wells. They are now quarreling over the water that we found, and they want nothing to do with us. So despite his feelings and troubles, Abimelech and his companions, they did not see him as an enemy, but an ally. And they said, we want to make an oath with you because we have seen that God is with you. They had seen that he planted and had a hundredfold increase. They saw that wherever this guy digs, he finds the water. Like he is able to do things. God is with him. Look at how he's prospering. Look at how he is living in this arid land by himself And no one can do that except God is with them. So they came in person to make an oath and covenant, not for Abraham's memory or legacy. It wasn't about Abraham at all. They're like, you are now the blessed of the Lord. We want to have a covenant with you because God is with you. Pretty awesome. Isaac's response, it shows us that he didn't think very highly of Abimelech at the time, right? You hate me, is what he was thinking, because of how he felt. He, had, he did not appreciate how he had been sent away. He found finding water difficult. He didn't realize that God was working to mend this relationship with Abimelech. Now, Abimelech, he affirmed he meant no harm by sending him away. Uh, he was actually afraid Isaac would do him harm. And so there was this this rift in their relationship that was unintended, but it needed to be dealt with. And Abimelech practiced what Jesus preaches in going to someone with whom you believe has an offense against you to avoid holding grudges or to prevent bitterness, to, uh, to eliminate the unjustified anger, to deal with that conflict because God holds resentment And those who are bitter and resentful, he holds it to account even as murder. So it's very serious in the eyes of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So if we will not humble ourselves before our brother to be reconciled to them, how can we claim humility before God? And if we fear God, as we say we do, will we not obey him? We should obey him. We fear God, and so we obey. Now, Abimelech couldn't change what happened. He couldn't change Isaac's heart, but he offered to make a covenant with him, to make an oath. He says, we've done nothing bad to you. We've only done good to you, and we want there to be no harm between us. To look out, so I want to be bound to look out for your good, and I want you to be bound to be looking out for my good. Now, this covenant of peace, or shalom, 
between Isaac, the blessed of the Lord, and the Philistine rulers, it's a foreshadowing what Jesus would accomplish through the covenant in his own blood. Because shalom is more than just the ending of war or the finishing of conflict, but it means wholeness, completeness, soundness, health, safety, and prosperity. See, the kingdom of God, it was not built on, by the, the shed blood of God's, you know, God's wars. Like he went on a, a spree, destroyed the nations, and built his kingdom on them. No. He, he created his kingdom. He established it by his own shed blood, by the blood of Jesus being shed. And it's one that's built upon love and grace and compassion Love for all people, Gentile and Jew alike. And Paul wrote this to Gentile believers. They were born foreigners to God's promise, the promise that God made to Abraham. And he said in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. It was not God on one side and man on the other side separated by sin. The picture is Jews are on one side, Gentiles on the other. They have enmity between them. He's removed that enmity because he has joined them as one to himself by Jesus and what he's done on the cross. And so the hostility between the various groups of people, between Abimelech and Isaac, between Jew and Gentile in the New Testament, that has been demolished, put to death by Jesus, who has made us all one in him. So we are now complete. We are whole with Jesus as our head and us being united with one another through his spirit. And so we therefore have no excuse to have bitterness and grudges against fellow believers, and we are bound to seek their good. We are bound. We owe them to love them. It says, no, owe man, any, no, owe man nothing except to love one another. You do owe that to everyone. Genesis 26, 30. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Pretty awesome. So Isaac, he's pleased to make that covenant with Abimelech. He made them a feast. They ate and drank together. The idea of eating and drinking is like we're eating the same food. It's, it is the same food is now inside of each one of us. And so we are like part of one another. We are one together. And so it was this uniting event for them to eat and drink together. He had been unceremoniously sent away from Gerar, but now there's this restoration. There's this unity that, did not ha that didn't exist before because now they had made an oath. Their relationship marred by misunderstandings and fears and conflict, it had been restored and they left there looking out for the benefit of each other. It's like Isaac, he thought Abimelech hated him. Abimelech thought Isaac's gonna harm us, right? Like they were, 
They, they weren't on the same page at all. But then they came together and made this covenant of peace. And on that same day, guess what happened? They have been digging that well. Who knows for how long? But on that day, we found water. So they called it Sheba, and it became Beersheba. That's the city that, that was uh, established around it. And that's when Moses penned the book of Genesis. He's saying that's where Beersheba is to this day. That's the day he's talking about. So this passage, it has so much imagery, so much foreshadowing of God's provision of salvation, leading people to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Isaac finds that spring of living water. It's different than just a, 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 a cistern or a holding tank. It's springing out of the ground. That well-named Rehoboth, that God had brought him into a broad place, and now he's going to be fruitful in the land. God's appearance and promise to be with Isaac and say, don't be afraid, I am with you. The covenant of peace with Abimelech, that he's the blessed of the Lord and finding water on the same day. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost too much. It's like, I cannot recap all these well enough. But uh, all this is for our learning, to, to learn, not to fear. Like we, if we are of Abraham through faith in God, then those promises God has made to Abraham are valid and in full force to us. The true Jews, the true believers in him. We look to God to supply our needs. And I think, of, I think even in the Bible we see it fulfilled where God who caused Isaac's servants to find water, he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and he made those bitter waters of Marah sweet, right? And he made a covenant with them. When they were thirsty in the wilderness, God directed Moses to speak to a rock and water sprang from it, right? A spring of water from a rock. Amazing. God does this. He supplies what's needed for his people. In the New Testament, we have a notable interaction between a Samaritan woman and Jesus at the well of Samaria. It was Jacob's well. The disciples, they had gone off. They were getting some food, and Jesus asked her for a drink. And she was really surprised that he would even talk to her because the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There was enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans, but no enmity between Jesus and this woman. He only had love for her. And so he talked to her. He asked her for a drink. Turn to John chapter 4, starting in verse 10. John 4, starting in verse 10. She says, why do you ask me for a drink? And this is Jesus' answer. I love how he doesn't always answer like you would think. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Then the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. 
He's like, can I have a drink? And she's like, why are you asking me for a drink? And he says, well, if you knew the gift of God, you'd have asked me to give you living water. And she's like, huh? Perked up a bit. Living water? Where, where are you going to get that? And how could you even get it? The, the well is deep. Are you greater than Jacob? <laughs> like, huh. Huh. Jesus was, he is, will always be the source of living water, the Holy Spirit. It's in him, right? It's through faith in him that we have this living water that's springing up a fountain into eternal life. So Isaac, he's digging wells out of necessity. He is thirsting. This woman, the Samaritan, she goes to the well to draw water to satisfy her thirst, her physical needs. But Jesus has come so that our spiritual needs can be met, our needs for our need for life, our need for love, and our physical needs are also met in him who gives water out of the rock. So Jesus, he's drawn near to us. The question is, are we thirsty? Will we drink from him? Will we trust him? Will we respond to him? Will we be born again through the power of the spirit? So if you want to turn just a couple chapters later, John 7, 37, this is what happened on the feast. John seven thirty seven. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, if you were to keep reading, you would know that Jesus was betrayed. He was crucified. He was confirmed dead. He was buried. And he rose three days later in glory. So Jesus has been received up into heaven, right? He ascended 40 days after his resurrection. So the Holy Spirit has been given. And Living water isn't just out there somewhere. It's in Christ, and then it comes from us. We become the source of living water because it's he is the source, and he dwells in us. Now, there's no question the Bible plainly states over and over, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended into glory. But the question is, will we drink of that living water? Will we ask him to be forgiven? to be born again by his grace. Are we going to look to him for life or are we going to carve out broken cisterns for ourselves to try to satisfy our thirst in this world that's perishing? Are we willing to repent of our sins, believe in the gospel and receive Christ as savior? And will we keep following him or like the children of Israel in Jeremiah where they forsook the living water and they tried to satisfy their thirst elsewhere. So today we will receive communion according to Christ's command. It's a simple love feast. It's, it's, I always wondered as a kid, like, why isn't there more? Like, it, it, it's so little. Like, I want a big cup. I don't want a little cup. But see, we don't eat and drink of this to satisfy our bodies. We eat and drink because we are satisfied in Christ. It is a token, it is a sign, it symbolizes his broken body for us and the blood that was shed for us through which we have been purchased. And so in partaking together, kind of like Abimelech 
and Isaac, it's like we are showing our agreement with the new covenant in Christ's blood, that that's real inside of us because of what Jesus has done. We have received it by his grace. And so our eating and drinking, it ought to coincide with reality. We don't do this to be forgiven or to have our sins expunged or anything. We don't receive eternal life because you eat or drink this. It is representation of what has happened by God's grace within. So in the early church in Corinth, communion, it was marred by drunkenness, by factions, and sexual immorality. And so Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven and 28, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So this examination, it's not to exclude you. It's so that you would examine yourself, repent, and eat worthily. And it's not because we're worthy. We are unworthy of ourselves, but we eat worthily when we do so in faith and obedience to God. That we would confess our sin, we would walk in love with others in the church. So when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Without a word, you're saying, Jesus Christ is my savior. By faith, I have received him. That his body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. I am born again, forgiven, and not my own. That's what you're saying without a word when you receive this. So it's no coincidence you are here today that you are hearing this message, that God has made room for us. He has made us these great promises. And we are blessed to enter in by faith to drink deeply of his grace, his forgiveness, and his love in Jesus who is blessed. Right? Jesus is blessed. Uh, Could I please invite the worship team forward? Uh, They will lead us in a song, and while they are leading us, Um, I encourage you, if you are in Christ, if you're not born again, today is the day, but uh, come forward and receive of the bread and the cup, and then I'll just lead us in a prayer together. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior, that he is greater than Jacob, greater than Isaac, greater than Abraham, the greatest there could ever be, the Son of God, the Son of David, the King of kings and Lord of lords the one who is, whose glory is infinite and eternal. And we are so privileged to be part of your kingdom and to have the new covenant of the gospel through your blood that we can receive you and that that living water can be springing up in us so that others will be refreshed, so that you would be glorified. Thank you, Lord, for all these pictures in scripture where you say that the one who loves you will be like one planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in season whose leaf shall not wither and whatever he does will prosper. And Lord, we thank you that you have just opened our eyes to see our need for you. You have made us thirsty and I pray we would not try to slake our thirst with anything of this world, realizing it does not satisfy, it cannot save us, it cannot help us, but you, Lord, you are our savior. You are our helper and comforter, our redeemer, our God and king. 
Lord, we love you and praise you for all that you've accomplished and what you are doing in each of our hearts and our lives. And I pray that you would uh, show us our need, Lord. You would convict us of sin, of righteousness and judgment, that we would live our lives in the way that pleases you, not just avoiding bitterness or conflict, but choosing to honor and glorify you. So Lord, I pray, have your way in each one of our hearts and be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.